It's that time of year. You gotta figure out what to get that special someone for the holidays. And if you're like me, that isn't that easy. Well, let us help make it a little easier. How about some Apple AirPods? And wait for it, they're free. From December 16th to the 20th, Himalaya will be giving away prizes like AirPods and Amazon gift cards every day. And a special mystery grand prize. All you have to do is simply download the Himalaya app in your app store and click on the holiday banner on the front page to enter so you won't show up empty-handed. Good luck! Hey everyone, so I have two more show recommendations for this episode. The first show I want to talk about is Invisible Choir. Now, if you're a fan of True Crime Fan Club, then I definitely think Invisible Choir will be right up your alley. Invisible Choir examines the most heinous murders through investigative storytelling, primary source audio, and victim testimonials, with the goal of bringing a voice to the voiceless and visibility to the invisible. So if you like the show, make sure you check out their premium channel on Himalaya, where you can find all episodes ad-free and 24 hours early, as well as exclusive content and a members-only community group where you can chat with the host. All you gotta do is download the Himalaya app, search Invisible Choir, and enter promo code CHOIR for your first month. And it's absolutely free. So, what are you waiting for? Go check out Invisible Choir, and since I love the show, I think you will too. Now, the other show I found is called Housewives of True Crime, and this one is becoming a quick favorite of mine. Again, if you love True Crime Fan Club, I'm pretty sure you're gonna like Housewives of True Crime. Each week, sisters Gretchen and Tabitha sit down and tell each other a true crime story while the other asks the questions everyone wants to know in real time. If you like the show, make sure to check out their premium channel on Himalaya. Again, all you have to do is download the Himalaya app, search Housewives of True Crime, and enter promo code HOUSEWIVES for your first month absolutely free. After this episode, be sure to head over to the Himalaya app and check out Housewives of True Crime. Stay tuned after this episode to hear a preview of TCFC Prime, a podcast that is listener-driven and only found on Himalaya Plus or Patreon. Information on how to subscribe will be included in the show notes. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. In the late 80s through the early 90s, Timothy Wilson Spencer was mainly known to the world as the Southside Strangler. However, it was actually the groundbreaking DNA evidence that was used in connection to this case that makes it such an important and relevant case to this day. The same DNA evidence that easily connected Timothy Spencer to each of his cold-blooded murders was the same that was used for the first time in United States history to free David Vasquez, an innocent man, from a life sentence in prison for a horrific crime he did not commit. Okay, on to the show. Timothy Wilson Spencer was born on March 17, 1962. He lived a fairly short life in terms of years on this earth. He was 32 years old when he was killed by electrocution in the prison at Greensville Correctional Center in Jarrett, Virginia. His execution came on April 27, 1994, which was about 10 years after his very first murder. 
He began his murder spree in 1984, but it wasn't long after his first rape and murder that he burglarized a home in the suburbs of Arlington, Virginia. We won't be discussing this crime in depth, other than to mention that Timothy was sentenced to a prison term for this crime, and as a result, there was a three-year reprieve in the murders. However, when Timothy was released from prison on September 4, 1987, he was sent to a halfway house in Richmond, Virginia, and it was there that he would encounter each of the women that would become his victims. He was barely out of prison for two weeks before he made his first attack. The first reported victim was Debbie Davis. Her car was found several blocks away from her house and was reported by a homeowner that thought it was suspicious. The car was left running all night and the keys were still in the ignition. Police ran the plates and found the car belonged to Debbie Davis and went to her house to check on her. It was there that she was found by the police. She was found raped and strangled with a sock tied around her neck. It had been tightened by a vacuum cleaner hose that was twisted in. It created a ligature and ratchet type of device. She was found on her bed with her hands tied with a shoestring. It was determined that the murder occurred sometime between 9 p.m. on September 18, 1987 and 9.30 a.m. on September 19, 1987. The official cause of death was ligature strangulation. The pressure used to strangle Debbie was so great that it caused hemorrhaging in her eyes and cut her neck, larynx, and voice box. Her nose and mouth were also bruised. There was semen found on her pajamas as well as on vaginal and rectal swabs. Investigators also found hairs within her pubic hair that didn't belong to Debbie. The evidence was preserved in the hopes of catching the murderer to bring them to justice. All of the collected evidence was eventually tested and was positively matched to Timothy Spencer. Debbie was a 35-year-old woman living alone in Richmond, Virginia. She was successful as an account executive for a company called Style Weekly. Her home was only about three miles away from the halfway house that Timothy was staying at and he probably saw her alone and seized the opportunity to attack her. Dr. Susan Hellams was the second reported victim. She was murdered only about two weeks after Debbie Davis. She was a 32-year-old woman who was living with her husband, Marcel Slag, in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Hellams was a neurosurgeon resident at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, and she was described by friends and family as smart, funny, and compassionate. Timothy Spencer entered her home through a second-story window that he broke into. He may have been watching her for several days to determine her pattern, or he may have chosen her at random, which seems unlikely given that her husband was not at home when she was brutally murdered. Sadly, though, it was her husband that found his wife in their bedroom closet. She had been raped and strangled and was found with two belts tied around her neck and her hands were tied. She was partly nude, and investigators found semen on her back, slip, skirt, and her vaginal and rectal swabs. It was determined that Susan was murdered sometime between October 2nd and October 3rd in 1987. The official cause of death was ligature strangulation. She suffered a fractured nose, bruises, and scrapes, and what appeared to be a shoe print on the back of her leg. The third and possibly most shocking victim was 15-year-old Diane Cho. Diane was the youngest of all victims, and she was only a freshman at Manchester High School, located in the suburb of Richmond, Virginia. She lived with her parents, 
Jung Chui Cho, and Kum Kim Cho, and her brother. As the family slept soundly in their respective rooms, the predator, Timothy Spencer, entered their home and attacked their only daughter, raping and murdering her in her own bedroom. Poor Diane was found on November 22, 1987, and she was found naked with her hands tied and duct tape placed over her mouth. Investigators later found semen on the bed sheets, and it was preserved for testing later. While the DNA was a match to Spencer, it ultimately was not used in the murder trial for Diane that happened later. Susan M. Williams Tucker was the last identified victim. She was a 44-year-old woman who was living alone in a neighborhood in Arlington, Virginia. Susan was found dead on December 1, 1987, but it was determined that she had been dead for several days before she was found. She was discovered laying on her bed, fully nude but partly covered by a blanket or sleeping bag. Investigators found a Venetian cord blind which had been tied around her neck and arms. They also found semen on the scene and again, they preserved it for future testing. The rape and murder of Susan Tucker looked just like the other murders that police were investigating. This murder, along with the others, were believed to be the victims of the man the media dubbed the Southside Strangler. The official cause of death was ligature strangulation, and Susan was determined to have died on November 27, 1987. Her home and her purse were ransacked, and also, like the other murders, Timothy Spencer entered her house through a broken window. Detective Joe Horgus of the Arlington, Virginia Police Department was investigating the murder of Susan Tucker, the last known victim of Timothy Spencer. The detective got right to work on the case and it didn't take long before he began to discover many striking similarities to the other murders happening near Richmond. The crime scenes and the violence inflicted on the victims were so similar that he couldn't seem to shake the idea that they were all connected. Upon looking further into several of the unsolved murders in Richmond and comparing the scene details, he knew he was on to something. The method of entry was the same for almost all of the murders. All of the victims were tied up somehow, with two of the cases actually including Venetian blind cords. He began thinking that the man known to the media as the Southside Strangler was the same man that killed Susan Tucker, and he dug in even deeper. The detective began to re-interview the victim's family several times to try to help jog memories, but also to attempt to link the cases. The investigation also showed the killer's progression, where he started out as a novice and quickly becoming so bold as to climb into the window of a sleeping family and brutally rape and murder a young lady in her own home as her family slept through the entire thing. There was a lot of legwork involved, and while this was the first case to utilize DNA to help solve the rape and murders, much of the investigation came down to running down leads, interviewing possible witnesses, and taking another look at the unsolved cases that appeared similar. Initially, the detective had a difficult time convincing his superiors that these crimes were connected. They didn't quite see the connections the same way as Detective Horgus did. Nonetheless, he continued his investigation, connecting the murders and looking for his suspect. He managed to establish that a brief lapse between rapes correlated to a prison stint that Timothy Spencer was serving on a burglary charge. 
It was then that he was released into the halfway house and began his rape and murder spree. Finally, the detective was able to suss out his person of interest and main suspect, Timothy Spencer. In January 1988, there appeared to be two more victims of the Southside Strangler. One was Rena Chapery, who was found on January 16, 1988, and a little ways away, Michael St. Hilaire was found. After the murder was thoroughly investigated, with police concluding that based on some differences in the crime, most notably that Rena was not raped as each and every other victim was, that it was the work of a copycat killer, and therefore not related to the murders of the Southside Strangler. Police also thoroughly investigated the crime scene involving Michael St. Hilaire, but despite some similarities, it was ultimately determined that Michael completed suicide and was not actually murdered by the Southside Strangler. I'm back again to talk about your pits, your armpits. So native deodorant has quickly become my favorite and seriously my go-to deodorant for the rest of my life. At Native, they create simple, safe, and effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. Hey, I just said that. So they're formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc. They're filled with ingredients found in nature like coconut oil, shea butter, which is a moisturizer and emollient, tapioca starch, which absorbs wetness, and they never test on animals, which hits me right in my heart. And best of all, there's free shipping and returns. So less is more with Native. They have fewer, simpler ingredients, so you know everything that's in your deodorant. It's aluminum-free, safe, and effective, and it comes in a wide variety of enticing scents for men and women. Plus, they release new, limited-edition seasonal scents throughout the year. For the current season, they have candy cane as a holiday scent, and it smells so good and really fresh, so I like it a lot. But if scent's not your thing, they also have an unscented formula and baking soda-free formula for those who have sensitivities. The best part is there's no risk to try, so they offer free returns and exchanges in the U.S. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code TCFC during checkout. Once again, for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code TCFC during checkout. You guys, last episode I told you about a brand new podcast from Wondery and the Los Angeles Times called Detective Trap. It's about Detective Julissa Trap, who has always wanted to be a cop. And she is, but she's not like the other cops. And you quickly find that out listening to the first episode. She's so smart and intuitive that she truly takes you on a journey in these episodes. I'm currently on episode three, and just a refresher, this podcast is about when three women disappear in Santa Ana, California, without a trace. It takes a bold, unwavering detective like Julissa Trapp to seek justice. And just a reminder about what Detective Trapp is about. It's hosted by award-winning journalist, my guy, Chris Gofford. And it's the story of a detective who fights through her own personal struggles and society's indifference to bring a serial killer to justice. Trapp's strongest resource for catching dangerous criminals is her personal experience. And like I said, I'm on episode three and I am seriously at the edge of my seat. So while you're listening to this, make sure to subscribe to Detective Trap on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to right now. You can also find the link in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy the show. 
So everybody knows, based off this podcast, that true crime truly is my passion. But even I need the break from true crime. So when I feel like I need that mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiend. And I currently have a rivalry going on with Josh from True Crime BS because he's apparently surpassing me in the different levels, so I definitely have to catch up. And this is why I love Best Fiends, because you really have a bunch of fun puzzles to solve, and they're challenging, but it's also a casual game that anyone can play, but it's definitely made for adults. So you can spend as much or as little time as you'd like in the game, and I honestly need to amp my time up because I need to beat Josh. I really love the visual design of Best Fiends. I love that you don't need internet. It's great for traveling. You can play anywhere on a plane, if you wait for the train, if you're waiting on an Uber. You can play literally anywhere. So I mostly play when I'm waiting for my coffee to be made or if I'm waiting for my breakfast to be made. And if I need just like a break when I'm at work or anything like that, I just pull out the game and I start playing. It's a lot of fun. And I have a lot of cute little characters that I've grown to love. So... I recommend that you join me in playing this game. You can engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Timothy Wilson Spencer was arrested in late January 1988 by the Arlington, Virginia police and was subsequently charged with the rape and murder of Susan Tucker. DNA testing also connected Timothy to the rape and murder of Debbie Davis, Diane Cho, and Dr. Helms. His crimes made him infamous enough to garner a nickname in the media, but what is most notable about this case is that Timothy Spencer became the first serial killer in history to be convicted by DNA, which also cleared another man that was wrongfully accused. The first trial for Susan Tucker was in July of 1988. It was the first case in Virginia state history where DNA was used to tie a murder defendant to multiple murders. He was quickly found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. There were three additional trials held for Debbie Davis, Dr. Susan Helms, and Diane Cho's rape and murders. The DNA evidence was used in each trial except for Diane Cho's case. In Diane's case, Timothy was convicted, but DNA was not used. He was found guilty at each subsequent trial. On September 22, 1988, at his final trial, a Richmond jury found Timothy Spencer guilty of rape, burglary, and capital murder. The jury unanimously voted for the death penalty, and he was sentenced to death by electrocution. During the sentencing phase, Timothy's criminal past was entered on the record and included convictions for six burglaries, three as a juvenile and three as an adult, as well as a conviction for trespassing. There were six witnesses that gave mitigating testimony on behalf of Timothy. They testified to their disbelief that he could have ever committed the crime he was accused of. He was described as something of a loner who was pretty shy and quiet. All of Timothy's convictions were appealed multiple times, and each appeal was denied. It was impossible to ignore the scientific evidence, and the tested DNA indicated that there was a 1 in 700 million chance 
that someone other than Spencer left the semen evidence behind at each of the crime scenes. Furthermore, there wasn't a consistent victim profile that would provide any sort of nexus connecting the victims to each other, such as them all being sex workers or being drug addicts. Timothy's first appeal was a habeas corpus appeal, which was filed in the state trial court. It was immediately denied. The Virginia Supreme Court denied the next petition for his appeal because the petition was filed one day late. A petition for writ of habeas corpus was filed in the U.S. Supreme Court, Eastern District of Virginia, but that one was immediately denied too. Spencer's appellate attorney raised several issues on their appeal. The first was that Timothy was unable to defend DNA. The trial court denied his request for the DNA testing lab work notes and memos, and the court also denied his request for funds for experts. He also claimed that the DA committed a Brady violation with regards to issues with lab testing methods. The Virginia Supreme Court found that DNA was properly tested and no Brady violation was found based on issues raised in the appeal. The court's denial for funds for experts was actually only denied because his defense attorney merely indicated that they may seek expert opinions, but they never actually said who the experts would be or what they would testify to. Another issue was that DNA should not have been allowed to be admitted as it was an unfamiliar science. Another issue raised was that the district attorney made a Batson violation when they struck a juror on the basis of race. That juror was Miss Charita Shelton. The Batson violation was also dismissed by the appeals court because the trial court judge wasn't convinced that the reason for this jury strike was unconstitutional and therefore the appeals court upheld the trial court's decision. Finally, the last major issue raised was that using future dangerousness as an aggravating factor in the Virginia death sentencing is unconstitutionally vague. There were other several issues Timothy raised regarding opening statements from the district attorney and jury instructions, but again, none of the issues brought forth were considered by the appeals court. Timothy Spencer's attorneys filed a stay of execution multiple times. While several were granted, he was eventually executed and pronounced dead at 11.13 p.m. on April 27, 1994. Almost 100 people showed up outside the prison, either advocating for Spencer's death or against the death penalty. Police investigators continued to conduct DNA testing and yet another DNA hit matched Timothy Spencer to a fifth victim. The problem with this was that another man, David Vasquez, was already serving a life sentence for her rape and murder. The fifth known victim was Carolyn Ham. Carolyn was a 32-year-old woman, and while she is considered the fifth known victim of Timothy Spencer, she was actually his first. But because of the false confession by David Vasquez, True justice for Carolyn was not served until her murder was acknowledged but not tried as having been committed by Timothy Spencer. David Vasquez was eventually exonerated for this horrific crime. Carolyn was murdered and raped in 1984. She was hanged and eventually was tied up. The day she was found, police discovered her window was broken where her attacker entered the home. The house was ransacked, as was her purse, so there was clearly a burglary motive in place. However, her blue Plymouth was left in the driveway. Carolyn was found nude, 
face down on the floor in her Arlington, Virginia home. Her bathrobe was found on the floor along with a knife and there was a Venetian blind cord left on the floor. She was located in the entryway to her garage. Semen was found on the scene and preserved, which was such a blessing because the scientific evidence in this case served as a catalyst to seeing justice done. Carolyn was a successful lawyer and lived alone. Sadly, this is likely what made her an easy target for Timothy Spencer. There is yet one more victim in this terrible, terrible story. David Vasquez. He was wrongfully arrested, charged, and convicted of the rape and murder of Carolyn Ham, and this resulted in the loss of his freedom for five very long years. David was sentenced to 35 years in prison, which is a life sentence. He ultimately served 14% of that sentence before his conviction was overturned and he was released. His release made David the first American to be exonerated of murder and released from prison as a result of DNA evidence. David Vasquez was a mentally challenged man that lived with his mother when Carolyn Ham was murdered. He couldn't even drive. David and his mother were former neighbors of Carolyn. She previously complained about seeing him around her house, and her sister reported this information to the police when she was murdered, and they immediately jumped on it. The police were able to coerce a confession from David. During their investigation, detectives parroted to David what they wanted to know. They essentially told him what the details of the crime were, knowing they could manipulate him into repeating their words back to them, thus confessing to the crime. His defense attorney negotiated an Alford plea, which is when the defendant agrees on record that there is enough evidence to convict them, but they don't actually admit to the crime. The plea is still treated as a guilty plea for the purposes of sentencing. David Vasquez died in 2013 at the age of 66. Several things happened as a result of this case. The very first DNA lab in the country was established in Virginia. Additionally, award-winning crime author Patricia Cromwell allegedly based her novel, Postmortem, on several of the individuals connected to this case. There would later be a lot of controversy regarding several of her subsequent novels. However, her basis of the novel, Postmortem, appeared to truly be art imitating life. If not for the hard work and dedication of Detective Horgus, this horrific murderer may have escaped capture and accountability for his devastating crimes. If not for the then groundbreaking DNA evidence, this awful murderer may have gone on to kill again and again. Thankfully for the victims of this outside strangler, there was science and good old-fashioned police work to ensure that justice was served and the man that committed the atrocious crimes would never see the light of day again. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player of choice. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. 
This episode was written by Mary Cole, researched by Haley Gray, content editing by Brittany Martinez. Audio engineering happens by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. And I'm your host, Lainey. And now, your exclusive preview of TCFC Prime, found only on Himalaya Plus or Patreon. When Dennis joined the Boy Scouts, he learned how to tie many different styles of knots. This, of course, only served to strengthen his bondage practices. By age 15, Dennis was no longer satisfied with simply peeping at people through their windows. He needed more of a thrill than peeping could offer him. He needed to ramp up the intensity and excitement of his secret nighttime activities. So, he decided to begin breaking into nearby homes of different girls he found attractive. He would very quietly sneak inside and then go through all of their feminine items, often taking a pair of panties or other insignificant pieces of clothing that he felt wouldn't be noticed or missed by the owner. At 17, Dennis was driving at a dangerously high rate of speed during bad weather conditions and took a curve much faster than he should have. He ended up crashing his vehicle into a ditch and broke the windshield with his head during the impact. This would result in the second serious head injury that Dennis had incurred in his 17 short years of life. In 1963, life was going well for Dennis. He graduated from Wichita Heights High School and bought himself a spiffy new car shortly thereafter. It was a 1958 Ford, and he was so proud of it. For the first time in his life, he began to have a relationship with women. This was new and exciting for Dennis. He also enrolled in Wichita State University, but eventually dropped out. In 1965, Dennis went on to enroll in Kansas Wesleyan, a college in Salina, Kansas. However, just as with Wichita State, his time there was brief due to failing multiple classes, so he dropped out yet again. He decided to enlist in the United States Air Force in 1966. He attended basic training on Lackland Air Force Base in Texas and went to teach school at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas. During his time in the military, he would serve in Okinawa, Japan. While overseas, Dennis lost his virginity to a sex worker at 22 years old. As always, his sexual fantasies continued to fully consist of acts of bondage and control upon women. When he could not perform these acts on the sex workers he had encounters with, he would instead cross-dress and wear makeup to fulfill his fantasies. Dennis was discharged from the Air Force in August of 1970. At this point, he moved back to the Wichita, Kansas area, where he soon got a job working in a supermarket and began dating Paula Dietz. After a brief courtship, Dennis and Paula were married on May 22, 1971. Around the same time of his wedding, Dennis enrolled in Butler County Community College. While in college, Dennis remained a lone wolf. Life seemed to be going well for Dennis. He had a beautiful wife that he loved very much and he was looking forward to starting a life with her they moved into their first home, a rental, but they had many plans for their future, and they were excited to embark on their new journey together as a couple. But Dennis couldn't stop his constant thoughts and fantasies of tying up women and rendering them helpless to his complete and utter control over them. 
he began reading a lot of true crime novels and even bought himself a mini hit kit. The kit was made up of ropes, tape, cords, and things of that nature. He really wanted to try out some light bondage with Paula. However, after doing it just once, Paula said she didn't like it, so he never tried it on her again. In 1972, Dennis finally graduated and received his associate's degree in electronics from Butler County. In 1973, he put his new degree to use and began working at Cessna, but he was let go after nine months due to the struggling economy at the time. This layoff was detrimental to Dennis and became a real turning point in his life. He became extremely angry and decided he needed to do something that he loved more than almost anything else, breaking and entering into a house. This break-in would be the first of many, many more to come.